You must respond to Jesus either as a liar, a crazy man, or the truth. I pray you'll come to him as the truth. If so, he'll rescue you from your sin. He'll bring you to the shore, make you well again, and you will have the gift of eternal life. But even before then, you've got to answer the question, do you want to get well? Welcome to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Who do you say Jesus is? A man, a prophet, or your savior? This is the most important question that all believers must answer. And how we answer this question determines how we spend our lives now and into eternity. Here's David with part two of a message he calls, Two Questions. Christ Jesus is the second Adam who came into the world to forgive us of our sins, wash away what Adam did, and give us the gift of eternal life and the promise that one day all of this pain and suffering will cease. Secondly, it's true that some people really are victims. They do suffer because of the decisions of other people. If you don't believe that, talk to the mother of someone who lost a child to a drunk driver. That drunk driver's decision affected her life forever. Uh, So we do have that operating in this world because of the world's fallenness, because of the fact that there are interdependent relationships that we do suffer that way. Thirdly, we suffer because of demonic oppression. That's very clear in the Bible. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, last week we saw how Paul said he had a thorn in the flesh, not identified, but something that caused him great pain, chronic pain. And he prayed three times that God would take it away. And God said, no, I'm not taking it away. This is a messenger from Satan that's come against you, but I'm going to use it for you to learn that my grace is sufficient and your strength is made great in your weakness. So that was a demonic oppression that came against Paul. If you read the scripture very closely, uh, you will see that there are approximately 20% of the gospels that have to do with some kind of demonic oppression or uh, onslaught. Interestingly, seven of those cause physical harm, physical pain. Job is a great example of that. It was Satan who came to God and said, Consider your servant Job. I hope Satan never goes to the father and says, consider your servant David. But he did that time and Job was a righteous man. And he basically said to God, if you remove your protection over him and I'm allowed really to tempt him fully, I can cause him to say he doesn't love you, to curse you. And God gave him permission to do so. Um, Luke 22, Jesus said to Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat, and I've granted it. You need to remember, Satan's a creature. God's the creator. But God gave Satan permission to attack Job, and he did so with all kinds of physical illnesses and boils and things like that. So Job's physical pain was caused by a demonic onslaught. That's a third way that the Bible describes pain in people's lives. The fourth one is because of our bad choices. We just make bad choices. So... We are drunk and we fall downstairs and we uh, become paralyzed. That is our fault. We made that decision to do it. Um, it. It could be any number of other choices that we make in life. You know, God gives us all the ability to make choices. We all are the sum total of our life's choices. And when we make bad choices, we can cause ourselves at least short term, maybe even long term physical pain in our lives. And again, it looks like with this 
blame man that number four is what's going on, that he had made some bad choices. Why? We'll see in just a moment. Let's go back now to the text in verse nine. Now that day was the Sabbath. John makes clear that everybody needs to know the Sabbath was when this miracle from Jesus to give this lame man the ability to walk again occurred. Now, why is that important? In Jewish history, the Sabbath was in honor of God's creation. And on the seventh day, he rested and then he commanded the Jews, his people, to do the same. Um, the Sabbath was made for us, not because God needed to rest. God neither slumbers nor sleeps. Psalm 121.4 isn't that good news that while we sleep, God's still in heaven ruling his world so that we can sleep deeply and soundly. Well, interestingly, of all the Ten Commandments, and the Sabbath honoring is one of the ten, it's the one that's most often restated over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And so the Jews looked at that and said, well, the Sabbath must be very, very important. And it is, folks. You need to take a day off every week. Out of the seven days of the week, you need one day where you take that day off and you rest. Because if you don't come apart, you'll come apart. <laughs> you know, you don't break God's laws. God's laws break you. Uh, if you burn the candle at both ends, you're not as bright as you think you are. We're not machines. We're supposed to take a day off. Marilyn and I take Fridays. It is a day we look forward to every week. And we also use as often as we can Thursday nights as our runway to enjoy our Sabbath. And on that day, we just rest. We do what we want to do to be refreshed in the Lord. We all need that. And the Jews understood that. That's why they knew the Sabbath was a set apart day. The word Sabbath means set apart, holy, a different kind of a day. And that's why it was stated over and over again, the importance of the Sabbath. In fact, in the Old Testament, at one point, people who didn't obey the Sabbath were said to, to be stoned by the other people in the community of faith. There's no record of that ever happening, but that's how serious God took the Sabbath and knew how important it was for us to take that day off as well. So John makes it clear that this miracle happened on the Sabbath. That's important because now in verse 10, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now you can just see these guys. They probably came with clipboards. They probably had their glasses on the end of their nose. They were the law police watching anybody and everybody breaking the law. And what had happened in that day was not only did you have the Ten Commandments, you had what was the Mishnah, which was the interpretation of those Ten Commandments and thinking through every possible scenario of how that could be broken. And on you shall honor the Sabbath commandment, uh, these Pharisees, these religious legalists, said, okay, well, you've got to look at every possible situation on the Sabbath so to the point where you can't lift anything on the Sabbath because that's working. That's exercising your strength in your body. You can't do that. To the point where if a guy had to walk with a cane because maybe his foot was hurting and he dropped his cane, he couldn't pick it back up. He had to either just sit down for the rest of the day until he could pick up his cane and keep walking, or he had to keep walking and limping toward his destination. Picking up the cane was considered work on the Sabbath. Well, to heal on the Sabbath was considered absolute blasphemy. You're not supposed to do that. that. That's working on the Sabbath. And isn't it interesting? This miracle happened at Bethesda, the pool of mercy. And, and these religious legalists were more concerned about following laws than they were the exhibition of compassion and mercy from the Father in heaven upon this man. So they came upon him with, again, their clipboards trying to see how he broke the law of God. 
And it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed in verse 10. But he answered them, uh, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And, and that man seems to imply that Jesus was still around. That, that's the man who healed me. I mean, the guy was pretty good at making excuses and not taking responsibility for anything. He pointed immediately to Jesus, but he did not know his name. Verse 12. Well, they ask him, well, who is that man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Verse 13, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So Jesus performs a ninja movement act where he evades the crowds and slips in and out and is hidden now from any view from anyone. It's a little bit like Luke, the fourth chapter, when he preaches that fabulous sermon at Capernaum, his first sermon ever. And he basically says, quoting from Isaiah 61, that today this messianic scripture is fulfilled in your midst. And the people put up stones and got ready to throw them at him. And then it says, and Jesus disappeared. They were getting ready to throw him off a cliff uh, and Jesus disappeared. He, he had the ability to slip away from people and he did the same thing here as the man pointed to him and then he was gone. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, now afterward, after Jesus had slipped away, after the religious legalists had left, Jesus finds him in the temple. Here's what I think happened. I think this lame guy who hadn't walked for 38 years went on a sightseeing tour of Jerusalem. For the first time he can walk and I think he's walking around all of Jerusalem. So Jesus finds him. Isn't that good news, folks? That as we're walking around, maybe even away from him, he still seeks us out. Jesus finds him and comes to him in the temple and says to him, see, you're well. And then notice the next words, sin no more. Isn't that fascinating? So what's the implication here? That this guy's physical pain was because of his sin. He said, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So it implies that the paralysis, the lameness was caused by something this guy did. Number four, and the reason for people experiencing pain today, he made a bad choice somewhere along the way. Maybe he was drunk. Maybe he fell downstairs. Maybe he became paralyzed because of that. And Jesus says to him, I've healed you. Now don't make those mistakes again. Sin no more because if you keep walking down that road you were walking down beforehand, the paralysis happened, you can make another choice that's even worse than that in its effect upon your life. Sin no more. It may be worse upon you unless you do. The word there, by the way, that we need to always claim in the Christian faith is kind of a word that's gone missing in action in the Christian faith is repent. When Jesus does a miracle for you and you love him so much, then repent. Follow him, lead his kind of a life. That's what Jesus is saying here too. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. He, he probably knew his name now. And he went back to the religious leaders and pointed to Jesus. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Now the word persecute literally translated means pursue. When you see Christians being persecuted, it means somebody or somebody's plural are 
pursuing them, pursuing them angrily and trying to hurt them because of what they believe. So these Jews start persecuting and pursuing Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Again, astoundingly, they were more concerned about their religious laws than mercy and compassion being given to this man. But Jesus answered them. Listen to this, folks. My father is working until now and I am working. So again, God works during the Sabbath. God continues to oversee and operate his world on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, as the father, my father is working on the Sabbath, so I am working too. My father, first of all, Jesus entered this world to perform a family business. If any of you are in a family business, that's pretty cool. There was a truck Jesus drove around, father and son. He was connected to his father. He called him my father. The Jews of that day had no understanding of, first of all, God as father, and secondly, as my personal living father. Jesus calls him my father. And as he's working on the Sabbath, doing good works, ministries of compassion and mercy, so I'm doing the same thing. Folks, do you see the second key question in this passage? The first one is, do you want to get well? Do you? Then you've got to change. But secondly, who do you say Jesus is? The cults that surround us in America today all say Jesus was just a mere man, a mortal. The other world's religions in Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, they all say Jesus was just a mere man. Hinduism hints that he's one of 30 million gods, but Jesus didn't claim that. He claimed exclusivity and uniqueness. Who do you say Jesus is? You've got three options. He either was lying to us when he said something like this, Secondly, he was a crazy man. He believed he was God, but he really wasn't. Or third, he was really God. And when you come to the conviction, as I did when I did the study, I invite you to do so too, that he really is God in human flesh, that he came to rescue us from our sin, that you'll yield your life to him and love him with all your heart. Here's a truth, that if you're in a lake, for example, and drowning, and you're getting ready to go under for the third time. The lifeguard swims to you, but that lifeguard has specific instructions to not try to save you until you give up, until you quit flailing your arms, because if you try to grab the person who's drowning, they'll take you down with them. So the lifeguard has to wait until the swimmer who's drowning gives up, and then they can rescue them. After they come to the shore, you can only imagine how grateful the person is for the one who saved them from the water and rescued them from drowning. The same is true with us with Jesus. For God the Father so loved the world, he sent his son into this world. And he came on a rescue mission, seeing us drowning. And until we give up, do you really want to be well? Until we give up and stop flailing in our sin and fighting off Jesus and coming up with excuses and being a victim instead of a victor until we get to that point of giving up. Only then can Jesus rescue us. But he wants to rescue you so badly. He is God in human flesh on a rescue mission. And those of us who believe in Jesus have made a commitment to come with him on his team to be involved in a rescue mission to try to bring other people to the shore where they can live and have the gift of eternal life. And if you don't believe Jesus is the Father, look at the next verse as well. This was why Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, why they started persecuting him. All the persecution that led toward the cross began right here. 
When Jesus healed this lame man on the Sabbath, that's when the persecution and the desire to kill Jesus began. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, it wasn't just that he broke the Sabbath, healing someone on the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Sometimes there are people who say to you, I'm sure, well, that thing of Jesus claiming to be God, that's urban legend, that's fable, that's folklore, that's nonsense. And you need to take them to many places in the Bible, and here's one of them, where it's very clear that Jesus claimed to be equal with the Father. We'll unwrap this in greater detail next week. Jesus claimed to be the Father. His close, intimate, personal friend, John the Evangelist, the writer of this gospel, wanted to make sure that everyone knew who Jesus really was and that he claimed to be equal with the Father. Dear friends, what will you do with that claim? What will you do with that claim? You must respond to Jesus either as a liar, a crazy man, or the truth. I pray you'll come to him as the truth. If so, he'll rescue you from your sin. He'll bring you to the shore, make you well again, and you will have the gift of eternal life. But even before then, you've got to answer the question, do you want to get well? Or are you comfortable in your sin? Are you comfortable in stiff-arming God, living in your desperate condition? Please, today, answer those two questions Do you really want to get well? Say, yes, I'm so tired of living this desperate, godless life. Then secondly, who is Jesus? He is the Lord of the universe who died on the cross to forgive me my sins. Would you dare believe that today? If so, receive Jesus right now by praying this simple prayer. Father in heaven, I invite Jesus into my life. I'm such a sinner. I'm a victim of so much sin, but also I've made choices to cause sin to increase in my life. And I want it rid, I want it gone. Come now, rescue me, take me to the shore, nurture me to be whole again, and give me the gift of eternal life. I believe it's true in Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed that prayer, welcome to the kingdom. Let us know that you prayed that prayer. We'll baptize you, maybe on Easter Sunday. Let us know because baptism is the proof that you believe it. You go under the water to die to self. You come out of the water raised to new life in Jesus. What a great time to celebrate that on Easter Sunday. Let us know. And then you've got to begin the process of becoming a disciple. It's one thing to make a decision. It's quite another to become a disciple. Our goal in this church is to help people make decisions and then become a disciple so that the world can know who Jesus is and be rescued. To Jesus alone and always belongs all the glory. I hope you've profited from the word of the Lord. You're listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Thanks for listening. Coming up, David joins me in a discussion about the power of honest, open, and clear communication. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Tony Marciano, President and CEO of Charlotte Rescue Mission. Let me ask you a question. What do you do when you stand at the intersection of homelessness and addiction? Let me put you in that person's shoes for just a second. What is it that you really need? You've probably been one of the individuals who stood at the end of the interstate ramp holding a sign that said, hungry, we'll work for food. But you never used the money for food. You bought booze and drugs with it. And most likely, you hate your life. Your addiction has stolen every aspect of hope. You want to be part of the fabric of society, but every morning your addiction screams and you surrender to it. There is one thing you do need, and that is transformation. 
the place to go is Charlotte Rescue Mission. Charlotte Rescue Mission works from the inside out to address the root cause of someone at the crossroads of addiction and homelessness. The Rescue Mission provides free, Christian, residential, high-quality substance abuse recovery programs to members of our community who otherwise would not be able to afford such services. With a passion for holistic transformation and a love for Christ, the mission's 120-day program has transformed the lives of thousands of men and women in our community. Charlotte Rescue Mission is grateful for the financial partnership of Moments of Hope Church. I'm Jen Houston. Thanks for listening today. Joining me in the studio is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thanks for being with us. You're welcome, Jen, and I hope you're doing well today. I am doing well. Thank you very much. Today, we're going to talk about your latest Davidism called What People Aren't Up On, They're Down On. What do you mean by this? (laughs) Well, uh, I spent yesterday with a leadership principle that I'm going to follow up on today. It's also a leadership principle that everybody needs to understand if they are uh, overseeing anyone at all. Here it is. And I've learned this one over the years as well. Communicate and communicate and communicate some more. (laughs) Communicate again and again. It's always better to communicate too much than to communicate not enough. So here is the principle. What people aren't up on, they're down on. Again, what people aren't up on, they're down on. Why? Because when people aren't told what is happening, they fill in the blanks themselves. Mm -hmm. And often the information they're filling the blanks in on is wrong information. Mm -hmm. Hence, what people aren't up on, they're down on. They start saying things, feeling things, communicating things that are absolutely wrong and often from a negative perspective. So communicate wisely and often from the start, prudent, discerning leaders do so. That's Proverbs chapter 15, verse 2. Over-communicating from the beginning prevents gossip and wagging tongues, often the source of malignant rumors, ones that lead people down a bad road, even though there might be good intentions with what they're saying. Become a wise leader, friends. Make good use of clear information. And we have so many different ways on the information highway today to give people insights and truth. Communicate honestly openly, but mostly often. That's because, once again, what people aren't up on, they're down on. Mm, That's so good. And it reminds me of something a leader told me once is never assume, always anticipate. So anticipate somebody needing more information and go ahead and give it to them so they don't start making assumptions. Right. We control the information flow as leaders. And honestly, Jen, this is a parenting tip as well that sometimes we assume kids just know what's going on in the family. And that's why my mom and dad practiced regular family meetings. It was times that we would get together as an entire family and they would tell us what was going on. If my dad was contemplating a call to another place, um, if we were going through maybe a financial setback or crisis, whatever it might be, they communicated it to us as children so we would know what was going on. Then -hmm. they would encourage prayer and that would allow us to participate in the family in a larger way. But believe me, children can pick up if there's tension in the home. They know if there are problems between mom and dad. Mm -hmm. So make sure 
sure that you communicate with them as well. Certainly, there are some places of privacy that aren't appropriate for children to know. And as adults, you parents should know that. But also, there are times you need to tell children what's going on because if they're not up on something, they're going to be down on something as well. I think that is fantastic advice and very timely for for me and my household right now. So thank you so much for this word of leadership and encouragement. Yeah, and people need to realize, Jen, that they are leaders in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. They're leaders in their companies, in their business places, but moms and dads are leaders in their homes, and they need to practice these principles as well Mm -hmm. because, once again, what people aren't up on, they're down on, even including our children. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, Jen, and all of you, if you'd like to receive a daily Moment of Hope from me, go to momentsofhopechurch.org. You can subscribe there. These daily Davidisms are free of charge. I have only one purpose, and that is to give you each day a moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. Today's message is from our online worship service, and you can be a part of our service each Sunday morning at both 9 and 11 o'clock by going to momentsofhopechurch.org. And while you're online, be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope, delivered every morning to your inbox. And also, check out David's weekly Hopecast. They're both free and available through our website. Again, that web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston. I hope you have a great weekend.